2: Hey, this is Jeff Canoe, director of Revenge of the Nerds, uh, having a great talk with Dustin and Zach on a $2 late fee. And yes, I know what you're asking yourself. Who the fuck is Jeff Canoe?
3: Before there was IMDb.com, there was Zach and Dustin. You know those guys who think they know everything about a movie without having to go on the internet to look it up? Thanks for listening. On to the show.
1: Is this quite possibly your favorite interview we've ever done, Dustin? I'm putting you on the spot right now.
3: Yes, um, this Jeff Canoe interview—that rhymes, by the way. This Jeff Canoe interview is uh, is wonderful and. I was very blown away for a couple of reasons. Number one, first director we've had on the show. I was already like, all right, all right. So that led us into the depths of uh, the minutia of things, the backstory of things. We just got the full, we got the full broad picture. So that was already like, yeah. And then number two, he just comes in and is like, so I'm going to burn every bridge I've ever made in the in the <laughs> business. And uh, is that cool, with you guys? And we're like, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, please. After you, sir. After you. So, yeah, this is good. This is a good one. It really is. You have to stay
1: through the whole thing because he progressively tells one crazy story after another. And by the end of the interview, he's blowing our minds with some information that I think he even said. He's like, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to say it anyways. Right. I mean, it was pretty wild.
3: Yeah, you don't you don't get that kind of uh unbridled honesty, well, in your day-to-day life or in our interviews usually.
1: And no, and in and from a person who really has the, the, the full perspective. Like he as a director, you know, he runs the show. So he is aware of all the moving parts when it comes to all these movies we love. Revenge of the nerds and gotcha and true beverly hills uh and obviously like seems like a personal favorite tough guys of him of his seems like a personal favorite but he knows all the backstory so he tells all the backstories and and then like i said it gets even more deeper with dirt <laughs> that he dishes by the end
3: deeper with dirt uh thicker with tea <laughs> uh that's a phrase right i don't know um I don't
1: know, but I, I am going to make one quick cheap little plug for our Patreon. Oh, yes. Because yes. Um, the, the $2.06 questions that we did with him, and for those of you that don't know, we have a Patreon with a lot of content, a lot of content, and different tiers, everything from $2 to 15 so please consider it. Please consider it because his segment that we do with him that is exclusive to Patreon has even more dirt. Uh, about certain Mm, movies mm -hmm. and people and things that he turned down. Uh, it's, 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 (laughs) it's really wild. So, uh, you know, you gotta really check, consider checking out Patreon and consider signing up for that. So end of the cheap plug. Yeah,
3: no, that's a great plug. And, and just to, uh, be clear is that if you sign up for our middle tier, which is our $8 tier, you can, you have access to this segment. If you sign up for the $15 tier, you can ask all the questions yourself.
1: Like Patrick Kabin and Aaron Gilmer and uh, Jeff and Elise Rubin.
3: Well, yeah, thanks to all Patreons and, um, yep, you guys jo- join up, join up because it's fun, it's interactive, it's a good time.
1: It's totally good time. Kind of like uh, a good time like this interview. I think uh, Jeff at one point goes, "Turn this off, it's depressing" or something. I'm like, "No, this is gold."
3: <laughs> yeah, it was uh, yeah very very self deprecating, Jeff. If you're listening to this thank you because this was this was this was some gold man
1: yeah this is it was really a pleasure to have him on the show it was better than i think either of us expected you all are gonna reap the benefits
3: yeah starting now jeff thanks thanks for thanks for doing this with us i do nothing oh no you have you you do nothing we are we are set. Ten years,
2: ten years of doing nothing. So okay. <laughs> I'm stealing that from my from my tombstone. It's gonna to say he did nothing. No, so go ahead. Incorrect.
1: Yeah, I, I know uh we have a mutual friend in uh Jesu Garcia.
2: Oh really? Oh yeah, he's a cool guy. I mean he's 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 evolved he's evolved from a, a good looking bratty guy to a s- sort of more imposing uh semi guru. It's a great description of him. Yeah, like when we were making gotcha and he was new and somebody you know brought him in and I thought he was great. We'd be in Paris. And every time we start to roll the camera, it would be like, Nick, where's Nick? Where's Nick? And he was always chatting up some girl. Oh my god. But he, he did a great job. Sounds about right.
1: I believe it. You know, before we get into any of that, because we definitely want to talk about gotcha and your 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 body of work, uh you have the distinction of being our first director on our show on two dollar late fee
2: well that's great and just just yesterday i found out because somebody sent me some kind of a internet posting that of all the comedy directors of all time i'm number 111. congrats <laughs> 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 that's good luck joe Apple was 19 and i was right behind a guy named jen wang who i never heard of hmm. but so uh, there you are you guys got a formidable first guest yeah, uh, we're not familiar with Dan Wang, right? Or Judd Apatow. <laughs> Paul Mazersky was ninety six, and he's pretty good. Oh wow! Mel Brooks was number one.
1: Well, uh, he's a little overrated. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Kidding.
2: <laughs> yeah. My my kids have like badgered me into writing a memoir, so I've written this thing, and I I couldn't figure out what to call it. Uh, my son wants me to call it a certain thing because he said I. I said this once, which is, I'll burn that bridge when I come to it.
0: Oh, uh,
2: he, uh, he thinks that's the really story good. of my. Jesus, that's <laughs> really good. <laughs> and, the other, and the other alternative title was "Who the Fuck Is Jeff Canoe?" Because that that seemed to sum it all up. So, once upon a time, I had been making movie trailers and successfully in the seventies, and I did quite a few things for Robert Redford and. I got to this point in, in my trailer-making life where I was feeling burnt out and feeling like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not really what I wanted. I wanted to be like somebody. I didn't just want to be a, a, a trailer guy who makes money. Hmm. So I was just kind of on the verge of stopping doing that and making a movie. And I made this film, uh, a uh, low-budget drama. Rex Reed called it the Grimest reaper of them all. <laughs> and then nobody nobody wanted to distribute it and it was, it was kind of very getting a lot of rejection and it was depressing and then uh, Redford called me one day and he asked if he could see it because he knew I had done it and Hal Holbrook was the star and he was actually thinking of using Hal Holbrook to play the lead in ordinary people when he directed it so he wanted to see Hal's work so I sent it to him and uh, he didn't he's, he was you know, sort of slow to look at it and get back to me. I figured he wasn't going to even watch it. But one day he calls me, and this was kind of right, right after a couple of things had happened, losing actors, whatever, and not getting distribution. And he said, uh, we were talking, and he said, Hal Holbrook, he, he did a good job in your film, but I don't think he's right for my film. I said, okay. I said, you know, I read that book, Ordinary People. I, I really I think it's great this is gonna be his first directing thing. He said, yeah, I love the book. We have a really good script. And I said, "Uh, are you gonna cut that in, and I lived in New York at the time and so did he. I said, are you gonna cut that in LA or New York? And he said, I'd like to cut it in New York actually. And I said, I've got a great editor for you. And he said, who? And I said, me, (laughs) because I had edited trailers and I had edited my movie and one other thing. So I was totally experienced editor. So he says, really? I thought you wanted to be a director. And I said, well, no, I'd love to edit ordinary people. I really like the project and I'd love to do it. And he says, okay. And a few minutes later I get a call from the producer, Ron Schwery, And he says, is this Jeff Canoon? And I said, yeah. He goes, who the fuck are you? I said, (laughs) uh, said, I've done a lot of trailers for Bob. He goes, why is he? Saying he wants to hire you to edit ordinary people. Do you know who we already have? Who? Sam Osteen. He cut the graduate. He cut Rosemary's Baby. He's great. Why does he want to hire you? Oh my God. Yeah. So that was, and that was the end basically of that conversation. But he and I ended up being friends and working nicely together. So, but I always, who the fuck is Jeff Canoe always stayed in my mind because I asked myself that. So, hi. (laughs) Next.
3: (laughs) But uh, what have you come up What's the answer?
2: yeah <laughs> what's the answer to who the fuck is jeff canoe yeah well, yeah having, how did you come up having with having written this 300, this 300 page memoir uh i think i'm gonna go with my son's title uh, i'll burn that bridge when i come to it and i wrote i wrote that and then i wrote a memoir by me and then i wrote a memoir by jeff canoe his own worst enemy and i mm-hmm. thought that would be good on the cover of the book but <laughs> then i thought and you know unless you really know somebody or have heard of somebody all these things don't even matter. It's so anyway, what I, what I am is I'm a guy who started out lower middle class guy in long Island. Uh, no dreams of being a filmmaker at all. Watched a lot of TV. Uh, as I got older, I started want to be a rock star. So I was writing some songs and I had a couple of bands and that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, and the peak of that was in 1963, Uh, we auditioned for and, played for a summer at a place called the Cafe Wa in Manhattan, where a lot of people who got really successful were playing like the Mamas and the Papas started there and Bob mm-hmm. Dylan played there and Hendrix later on. And uh, the, the comedy star of the first week that we played was a new guy named Bill Cosby. And then he mm-hmm. left and became famous. And then the next, the next comedy guy or later that summer, there was another new guy who nobody ever heard of called Richard Pryor. And so all these guys started there and became stars. And we played there and went nowhere. Uh, (laughs) And so I I got a little frustrated. And and then like all bands, the band broke up. We we, we auditioned to play at the 1964 World's Fair and we got hired. And my bass player, who was kind of a budding Charles Manson, said, I quit. And I said, why? And he goes, because we suck. (laughs) <laughs> I said, but we just played this whole summer here. We don't suck that bad. And he said, yeah, we do. And he would, so the band broke up. And then for the next few years, I oh, man. still tried being a songwriter, you know, knocking on doors in the Brill building in 1650. At one point I had a, I, I'm telling this a little inside out, but I, I got a, a record contract from a small record company. The A&R guy was named Jerry Landis. Short, nice guy. Played me a couple of things he had produced. I thought they were pretty good. And then that band broke up that got the recording contract. (laughs) And then when we were auditioning, they used to have a thing called Hootenanny, where where you audition on Sundays to maybe get a shot to play at the Café Wild. So our audition was on a Sunday at their Hootenanny. And I'm standing on line with my guys waiting to go in and audition. And there's a guy right in front of me that looks familiar. And he turns around and I realize it's Jerry Landis. So I say, hey, Jerry. And he goes, hi. I go, Jeff Canoe. He didn't say who the fuck is Jeff Canoe, but he said, <laughs> refresh me.
4: I said, <laughs> you gave me a recording <laughs>
2: contract last year. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you write the songs, right? Yeah, and the group broke up, right? I said, right. He said, I said, this is my new group. He goes, I, I, "He says, and anyway, I'm not using that name, at Jerry, anymore. I'm using my real name, Paul Simon. Uh... And, he, and there was this talk. This tall, skinny guy standing with him, and he he said, "This is my partner, Artie." And they went on an audition right before we did.
0: Oh, and we got
2: amazing. We eventually did okay. Wow! And then, in fact, he did the score for Graduate, which is the trailer that I did, and that's what made me successful. Was that trailer? So crazy!
1: Wow! What a wild turn of events. That's crazy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All I wanted to talk about was natural enemies today. Um, just kidding.
2: <laughs> you know, I have, I have a bunch of kids and none of them could ever sit through it.
1: <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> uh, on our show, we, we praise our guests, entire body of work, whether that's a good thing or not, you know, whether they're proud of one thing or, or the other, because the bottom line is, All the people that are involved in making these projects, you know, we want to praise and acknowledge them. And that, you know, whether the project ends up coming out the way it was intended to or not, uh, a lot of hard work goes into these things. And, you know, we acknowledge that on our show.
2: Every movie is a war and every movie is a miracle.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Well said.
1: Uh, Yeah, all I wanted to talk about was Natural Enemies today. Um, Just kidding. powerful thoughtful
4: sensual, sensual suspenseful dramatic is that what you want no. erotic hypnotic psychotic we'll be dying in our own home
0: together which is better than my
4: Brooke, one of
0: America's most gifted actors, Louise Fletcher, Academy Award winner
4: for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, an emotion picture that will touch you, disturb you, and perhaps change the way you live your life. Natural Enemies. Uh,
2: natural Enemies, though, oddly enough. That movie came out just the way I intended. I wasn't, I wasn't unhappy, and I'm still not unhappy with it. It just was the reason that book was available for me to option and adapt and make into a movie is because everybody else was sane, and they didn't <laughs> want to make that movie. And I just, I just connected to that material. It was it, maybe because I was married improperly the first time and, and maybe the second time <laughs> and certainly the third time. <laughs> Anyway, so I made made this film, and and the film was about a guy who is kind of successful and very feeling very alienated. And even though his business was successful, he feels empty. And the the fly leaf of the book was his first speech where he's standing at 6 o'clock in the morning at his bedroom window, and he says, I didn't sleep at all during the night. At least I didn't know if I was asleep or awake or lost or dead. But as I stood at my bedroom window that morning, I knew that when I came home that night, I was going to load my Remington rifle and shoot Tony, Alex, Sheila, Miriam, and myself. All men think of killing their families. Some do it. Some because they have no clue. That's how the movie begins. Great. I mean, I thought that. Everybody's gonna wanna relate to that or at least understand what's going on. And, and you know, occasionally people do that crazy action. So I made the film true to the book. The, the novelist loved it because it was very true to the book, and uh, a couple of critics liked it. And most of them said, "You know, why? Why did anybody make this movie? Why do we need to see this? It's depressing," which it was. Mm-hmm. But then, always tell me to stop if I'm babbling. Anymore. No, 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 please, please. Keep- uh, when I, when I, no, no. Okay, so I worked on I worked on ordinary people in in Chicago area as the editor, and the crew was all from California. And they heard about, I had done this movie, and it it opened and died in two weeks in New York, and it was going to play for one week in California. And they said, can we see it? So I got a print, and I showed the crew the movie. And they said, it's really an interesting movie, but why does he have to kill him at the end? Why can't he not kill him at the end? Mm. And I thought, well, you know, my original instinct was that. But then Hal Holbrook, when he signed up to do it, which he did, he said to me when he called me one day and he said, they must die at the end. I just left my wife and he has to kill him at the end of the movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hal and I made an agreement that I said, look, let's let's shoot it both ways. You know, one version where we find out that, you know, Louise Fletcher, who played his wife, who had just won an Oscar, that she talked yep. you out of the idea and you walk back into the house. And that's the end of the movie. You, and we realize that you're not going to do it. Or we stop short of that and we hear a news broadcast that says tragedy struck in West Reading, Connecticut tonight. A man killed his family and himself, blah, 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 blah. So by the time I finished making the movie, I kind of agreed with Hal. Yeah, they have to die. And and, and even the the novelist, I asked him why you had, because he had two endings in the book. I said, why do you have two endings? He said, well, I wrote it the one way, the, the hopeful way. And my friends, a lot of them said it was a cop out. So I added the obituary mm. at the end. Mm. And so you have a choice of what you want your ending to be. So it's a little weird, but I, <laughs> I understood it. Anyway, so I originally ended the movie with the with the news broadcast. So you find out that he killed him. The California guy said, just snip that off, and you'll think maybe he didn't. So I thought, okay. So I took the literally took the print, snipped off that 20-second news broadcast, showed the same film in California without the 20 seconds, and the review said, uh, "a, a uh, uh, an uplifting tribute to the restorative powers of love and communication. Ah, amazing. Um, instead of the grimmest reaper ever fade. So there you go. That, I should say that did not lead to my getting Revenge of the Nerds.
1: <laughs> well, or Eddie Macon's run for that matter too, you know. Uh... <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the, the thing is you're hitting on a really interesting point about this uh, this new generation doesn't understand how critical reviews were back then. That a, a review by Rex Reed or or Gene Siskel or Ebert would make or break a movie, you know. And and
2: clearly, no, that's true. And and it was because it would then trigger, because movies didn't open in a thousand theaters back then. They'd opened in the, mm-hmm. you know, just in the big cities, right. and then it would spread out to the suburbs. So if it got bad reviews. The, the studios would automatically cut back on their marketing money because they figured it's, it was a bomb. And so the movie would just disappear. Whereas once it started, you know, with jaws, they would get a thousand theaters and they could overcome, even though jaws was a great movie, it could have overcome poor reviews, but because by the time the people have read the reviews, a lot of more people have seen it. So it was better for the life of the movie that the critics weren't as powerful. Oh, good point.
1: Reed with his, swagger <laughs>
2: how dare he <laughs> well I, I, he was okay i had only only met him once I, I was working on the the uh, television campaign for billy jack which had bombed when it first opened and then was being re-released with new commercials and warner brothers called and said rex reed is going to do a, a good review for billy jack and so i got the studio and I shot Rex Rex Reed saying how much he loved Billy Jack. And at, as soon as we finished, he said, where's my money. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, maybe he still believed what he said, but he did get paid for that. Sorry, Rex. Well, mm. It doesn't, mm.
1: it doesn't hurt when you get a little bit more extra because of it. But, uh, but, but like you said, none of this, well, all of this leads you, everything you do in your life gets you to where you are right now. Right. So when you got Revenge of the Nerds, everything had led up to that point in getting that director position.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the reason that I got that job was not because based on my work, I was qualified for it, although I had done trailers that were comedic. I did did a lot of Woody Allen's trailers, a lot of Mel Brooks' trailers. So I I mean, I did actually have a sense of humor, but based on Natural Enemies and Eddie Macon's Run, no one would ever know that. So (laughs) I was feeling like my, my career is dead and then a friend of mine and this is the beauty or the ex-beauty of hollywood a friend of mine calls me and he says you won't believe it i just got hired as the head of production of 20th century fox he was a, an agent and a producer <laughs> won't believe it and i said oh that's great Jill. he said i'm sure i'll get fired in a year but in the meantime i can hire my friends to do stuff so i'm going to send you some scripts. Awesome. so he sent me three scripts. one was one was bachelor party yeah One was called Gimme an F about Cheerleader Camp. It was awful. And one was this Revenge of the Nerds thing, which I almost didn't read because of the title. I thought, I don't know what a nerd is, but it sounds but then I thought he's the only guy interested in hiring me, so I should at least read it. And plus he's a friend. I read it and I thought, (laughs) hey, I get this. You know. My first day at college, I felt like I was rejected by everybody and I would never have any friends. And I understood that. So I called him and I said, I could do this nerds thing. And he said, well, there's a problem. I said, what? He said, the producers have seen your other two movies and they don't even want to talk to you. But I'm forcing them to meet with you. Oh, my God. So I had to fly out to L.A. I had to fly out to L.A. and meet with these guys. And somehow, either I did my homework well or... We just had a better vibe in person or their expectations were so low that we had a nice, long, good meeting. And I thought, all right, I think this is going to happen. So then I went back to New York and my friend called and he said, how the meeting go? And I said, uh, it went really well. I, you know, we, we hit it off. We talked. We seemed to see the thing the same way. And he said, yeah, you made one mistake. I said, what's that? He said, you said Risky Business was a better movie than Animal House. So he had already gotten the report on the meeting. I said, "Well, it is. I mean, Animal House is a big hit, but Risky Business is a much better movie. I mean, it's, it's got more texture, Agreed. better characters, and it's still funny. But it's yeah. also, you know, has, has a point. Yeah, yeah, it's a story." Yeah. He said, "Well, what, what kind of movie, what kind of a movie are you going to make from this script?" I said, "I'll make the best movie that I can." He said, "That's not that's not the right answer." <laughs> I said. Well, this is a much more comedic script than Ris- risky business it'll be a more comedic movie but i'd like the characters to be human beings and not a cartoon yes yep. he said what so what kind of a movie are you going to make i said you what you want me to say is animal house sir he said that would be good <laughs> i'll tell you what when i left to come out there for the meeting i told i was teaching a class at the time i told my class that i'm going to la to audition for the job of directing a stupid teenage comedy. And he said, that's it. (laughs) And I said, said, all right, how about if I tell you that I promise I'll make a movie that I'm ashamed to put my name on? He says, you've got the job.
4: (laughs) There you go. There you go. Star Wars, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Sound of Music. In the tradition of these great films about fighting back against the odds, 20th Century Fox presents another milestone in motion picture history. Revenge of the nerds. Nerds! Nerds? Nerds.
0: Nerds! Nerds. What is a nerd?
4: (laughs) They've been laughed at. Picked on and put down
0: I'm not kissing a nerd
4: they don't have the moves oh. or the muscle
0: you know karate? Uh, no good
4: but they've got the brains
0: I know what we're gonna do
4: it's time for the odd <laughs> to get even their action tonight demands an immediate retaliation
0: how many cameras do we have left? this should do it oh, oh. here she comes go up go up <laughs> oh no oh <laughs> <laughs>
4: It's as
1: good
4: as you. Revenge of the Nerds. Their time has come.
1: I drink to that.
3: One of my favorite things to learn about Revenge of the Nerds, and obviously this movie was very pivotal for for Zach and I. Um, and you know I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times. But I was very. I, I recently read Curtis Armstrong's biography, and to hear like the disdain that most of these guys had for their own characters, like, like his, he, he wanted to basically bury Booger. He didn't want to own Booger and Bobby Carradine was like, I'm not a nerd. And so I just, and, and even, you know, hearing your story about it, it's like, there was so much resistance to this nerd title and being perceived at it, that um, they, they really had to overcome a lot to even get what
2: they were doing. Yeah. I mean, do you remember an actor named Eddie Deason? Yeah, probably. He was, he was, he had played in one some movie, I don't know if it was used, cars or car wash or something, and he, he had played the, the quintessential nerd with the tape glasses yep. and whatever, and somebody you look at and laugh at, mm-hmm. and nobody wanted to be that. I mean, Bobby didn't want – Bobby said to me the first time I met with him, he said, I'm not going to read for this, and I only came because my agent made me come, and frankly, I'm not a nerd. I'm probably the guy who would beat up a nerd. So I said, oh, okay. So he didn't <laughs> look, want the job. Easy. Oh, yeah. Anthony didn't want to do it. He thought it would be, you know, a clown show. Um, Booger told his agent, "I will play a part in this movie. Anything but Booger." And Curtis would not read for Booger until we offered it to him, and then his agent made him take it. <laughs> <It's ambustial, laughs> right. the same thing. So we had this whole cast of people who thought the movie might be a piece of shit, except that I yeah. swore that we wouldn't do that, and we didn't. And so, and just it somehow miraculously came out and it was funny enough for people that wanted it to be. And it was also human enough for people to actually not mind identifying with and relating to So there you go.
1: I mean, that's wild because, because that movie is, it's iconic. There, there, there are a handful of eighties comedies that you say when you say, what are eighties comedies that you must see? And revenge of the nerds is always on that list. It's always on that list. And like you said, that this movie is so much more than one particular scene. There is tremendous amount of heart. Every time I do watch it, that's what I take away from it: is that we've all felt like outcasts. I feel like an outcast all the time to this day, even sometimes, you know. And and there's something so relatable to that, um, and and beautiful that they're able to, you're able to achieve that in in such a in such a lighthearted way. Ultimately,
2: yeah. I mean, the comedy. Common- you know the silly stuff—the belching contest and the panty raid—and it's the, the secret video cameras. That was all there in the script, and it talked about. You know they wear glasses and they and they look like nerds. And what what wasn't as much in the script was the the kind of not love story but the relationship story between those two guys. I mean they were really close friends, and. Lewis and his dad had a really good relationship even though they both had funny laughs and glasses and big noses. And Anthony's dad had died and his mother and he he really cared about his mother. I mean it was there was a lot of humanity in it. And even, you know, yeah. even yes. Betty Childs and in the, in the, the only the one thing that has seemed to have echoed over the ages about Revenge of the Nerds is in the Me Too era, Revenge of the Nerds is considered a movie about rape. Yeah. You know, that, right. that he has sexual contact with her under false pretenses because she thinks it's the other guy. And uh, they, people think that's awful. In fact, Seth MacFarlane is supposed to remake Revenge of the Nerds um, with these other directors because, yeah, and uh, guys called the Lucas Brothers. At least that's what I've heard or read. Read a lot of comments of people saying, Seth MacFarlane will do it, and he will repair the damage done by the original movie with all with that mm. they scene. I don't think that that Seth would do that because he's a pretty uh, funny and out there guy. So I don't yeah, think he'd have yeah. a problem. But he's pretty blue. Yep. I've talked to a lot of people who really have changed their attitude about the film because of that scene. You know, they think it was awful to do that. And at the time, the actors didn't have a problem with it. Julie Montgomery didn't have a problem with it. You know, he goes down on her and comes up the next scene, and she goes, "You're that nerd." And he goes, "Yeah." She goes, "You were wonderful." That's it. Boom. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, yeah. 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 And I never heard a complaint about that back in the day. Different time, too. I mean, completely. You know,
3: you wouldn't hear anything about it then.
1: It's the context. It's the context. It's it's, it's really when you when you you take a a word or a phrase, then you can manipulate it into a way that to make it seem more harshly. But when you look at it in the context of the film itself and it all plays together, it all makes sense. We are in such a different time in so many ways, good and bad. Uh, And and it's, it's such a, obviously a sensitive subject, but this movie is so much more than one particular scene. Like I said, you know, like you said, that's so much more fleshed out. I think when, when you, when you truly revisit versus just talking about a movie, but actually sitting down and watching it, which I think happens more often than not nowadays, people will watch a clip of something or they'll watch a gif of something and say, oh, that movie was trash back then, or, oh, that movie was a masterpiece it's so much more than that, you know? I, that's my two cents.
2: Yeah, i and even in the, it's funny how movies evolved. I mean, people have often said, you know, at a certain point, the movie starts telling you what it wants to be. Yes. Uh, mm. Put the film together for the first, first time. I actually had the line producer from Animal House as my line producer because the studio hired him because they were afraid I wouldn't be funny. Oh my God. And he was supposed oh to be- Oh my God. First we'll day I met him, it was peter mcgregor scott and he, we, he comes and in, introduces himself and I go, he goes i'm going to be your line producer i go that's 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 good he's an english guy a really great guy and he goes i just want to let you know i'm the spy but i won't be i won't we'll work together and we'll make this movie good that's all because all i care about is the movie i don't care about the politics and that's how we did it and he was a great great partner on that movie but the, the original script had room for me to put in certain things that I thought were important, like there's a bullying scene that isn't in the movie anymore. Um, Hmm. When the nerds win the talent show and then the coach sends the the jocks out to destroy the nerd's house and they do it, I shot that pretty graphically because I thought this is, this is reminding me of my high school years, you know, where there were bullies and they really hit you. They didn't just like, you know, say nasty things. And at at a certain point, Ogre, I think, knocks Anthony Edwards to the ground outside their house. And when we previewed the movie for test audiences, because that was something I learned from Peter McGregor Scott, you have to test a comedy a lot of times because the audience is going to tell you what it wants and where it's bored and where it doesn't Mm -hmm. think it's funny. And my first reaction was, I don't want to do that. But once he got me in the, the, the spirit of doing it, it seemed like a gift to be able to do that over and over. And we did that maybe eight or nine times before we ever showed the film to the studio. So by the time we showed it to them, we, we knew what it was. Anyway, at some of those, they, they, they would love the movie. And then all of a sudden when that bullying scene came on, there were no laughs after that. They they Mm. bummed them out. And when we took just that out, I mean, they still run, they knock down the fence, they run into the house, cut, aftermath. We didn't have any of the, the the violent breaking things or the bullying scene and then the audience was okay you know then, they, then there's a scene where bobby carrie is sitting there he goes i'm a nerd i never thought i was a nerd before but now i realize i am and and he goes he goes off to uh, and anthony goes off to the bonfire to do whatever he's going to do and so we had this ending where the the uh, lambda 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 guys come in and they stand up to the football players and everybody, Anthony gets to make his speech. And then the, we had a problem with the screenings because that ending was serious. Mm. And mm. even though the people would laugh, were were supposed to laugh and we got them back. But then they were, they were just sitting there kind of thoughtful and not hating the movie, but the scores were like 60% good to excellent. Uh, and then finally the studio had changed. My friend got fired <laughs> and a new regime And you know, the new brood and sleeps sleep, clean. And the first thing I heard was I'm just walking somewhere one day and somebody comes up and says, Hey, I hear your movie's a piece of shit.
1: Oh no. And I man. go,
2: Who'd you hear that from? It, who'd you hear that from? Uh Norman Levy, the new head of the studio. Uh And and I thought, Oh, well, I'm in trouble now because he the other guy commissioned that project, so he wanted to destroy it. Right. And of course. we had a couple of good screenings but nothing great and then in order to justify burying the movie because they were going to advertise it that movies had started to open in lots of theaters and they were going to advertise it during the uh, Olympics of 64 and spend a lot of money on network television this was going to be the guy's excuse to uh, cut the budget on the marketing so he said you're going to take it and you're going to have another screening because your, your last screening was just in the 60s and we got to do one more screening in Las Vegas, and I thought that doesn't seem Uh-oh. like a town for Revengers.
0: <laughs> no, <laughs>
2: we go to Las Vegas. We have this screening. You know, they advertise it. People show up, and it got up in the '80s. Wow! So we thought, okay, we're safe. And the, the same guy says that was an aberrational screening. Now you're going to Dallas, where oh. we have now we have a movie where the black athletes make the. White athletes back down, and it went uh, back down into the '60s, and
0: oh, we did only
2: release it in a hundred theaters. And stuff, but it somehow trying it it. alive. And, hmm. Yeah, I'm exhausted. Amazing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that is it. We, we've heard this. This, we've is heard this so often. Um, yeah, I mean, what a what a wild journey that you had with this film to get to finally get to where it is, because obviously it came out in theaters, and then you know. But but the, the, the VHS and the video stores and obviously the name of our podcast two dollar late fee comes from the, our love of the video store days the era of that time and it it, it, re, it lived on so well because of video sales and video stores and rentals and stuff like that
2: absolutely and HBO so it it, it, it somehow it, it, that be, it became it had a chance to reach enough people to become whatever version of a classic it is and that's great and after that the funny thing is there i had done these two really depressing movies or not one depressing and one just neither neither here nor there and after nerds i'm a comedy director and i couldn't even get seen on a serious film Uh and my my and i spent the whole rest of my whatever a-list time trying to get back to doing a more serious film but and i never could I, I mean, I, mo- I got back there eventually by doing a Holocaust film. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Let's get back to the Holocaust.
2: Oh my god, it's
3: funny.
1: Is that why Gotcha has um, Dustin and I have talked about this with Gotcha? It, it there, there's like a there's the there's a very serious, intense side to Gotcha, and then there's also this very lighthearted, comedic side to Gotcha. Yeah.
2: Now that was that was in. I didn't develop the script. It was written, and the producers had it, and then they hired me to direct it. But it, that was always there—the the double-edged sense of it. The beginning was funny, and then he gets in trouble with with Sasha, and then the danger follows him home. But there's comedy throughout, and it just somehow it worked. It worked to have both going on. It did, they didn't—they didn't destroy each other. They they complemented each other in a certain way. Uh, who knew? You know, and I, I, the actors pulled that off, and I'll take some credit for it, but it was in the script too.
1: Well, Jay gives you
2: a lot of credit for take developing his character. <laughs> yeah, I'll take more Well, I did, I, I cast it, so I'll take. There you go. That.
4: I was just uh, wondering if you're doing anything Saturday night.
2: No, I don't think so. Would
4: you like to go out with me? No. Jonathan Moore is a young man with a problem.
1: You are without a doubt the biggest animal I have ever seen in my entire life.
4: (laughs) Does that mean no? He goes to Paris on vacation. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? He meets a mysterious woman. I like virgins. You do? In an even more mysterious line of work. What are you, a spy? Yes, I am a spy. He follows her to Berlin. Now the CIA is after him. The Russians are trying to kill him. Russians? He's having the vacation of a lifetime, if he lives. Gotcha!
0: Don't be surprised!
4: Gotcha! You're a regular James Bond, man. Gotcha! You gotcha.
2: I, through the Gotcha! I definitely wanted to work with Anthony because we had such a great relationship on Nerds. And he was perfect for it because he kind of looked like you know the he could have been a, a, weird a virgin. Uh, of course. and then when it was still at Fox, they called me. In, they called me in and they said, uh, "How about Tom Cruise to play the lead?" And gotcha, I said, "But Tom Cruise isn't a virgin."
0: <laughs> we know
2: that. <laughs> he's not going to walk around being a virgin again. So they said, "All right, what about Johnny Depp?" And I said, "Yeah, he's too weird." And uh, so I was. I had a fight for Anthony <laughs> to get that part, and then it changed studios. It <laughs> we went from Fox to Universal, and we went through the same process. What about Craig Sheffer? Blah blah blah. Oh, wow! And so I, I finally came down to I had to, I had to test Anthony and this guy Craig Sheffer, who was you know more of a studied, studly looking yeah, guy. So. Hunk. Yeah, I know, And we went into this, the, <laughs> the head of the studio. We went to his office with both tests. And they called in a bunch of secretaries. I, I, we don't call them that anymore. They're assistants now. But secretaries and females who worked in the office. And they showed both uh, auditions. And 100%, they all went for Anthony. Because they felt more like they, they could mother him or something. You know, He was Bambi, and the other guy was a stud. Yeah. Yep, yep. So that worked out.
1: Oh, it's perfect casting. The casting's fantastic. It wouldn't have worked. Wouldn't have worked
2: any other way. I, I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah. And I mean, the Linda Fiorentino character evolved in in a similar way. Uh, that character was written as an actual Czechoslovakian spy. Mm. And so we were only seeing European actresses. And some were good. And then the studio, before they had committed to Anthony, they wanted me to go look at Matthew Modine in Vision Quest. So I went to the directors, the, the cutting room, and I looked at some footage of Vision Quest, and I thought Matthew Modine, well, he was okay, i still prefer Anthony, but who's this girl? Ah, She's so interesting. Yep. Yeah, So at, at one point, I, I went to New York, and she was now, I think, making After Hours yep. for, for Scorsese. Linda. Classic. She came in, we, I met with her, and I said, you know, I have this feeling about you, but I'm worried that can can you pull off being a Czechoslovakian spy? She says, I'll come back tomorrow or the next day and I'll I'll let you know if I think I can. Mm. So she went to a dialect coach, developed the the way she speaks in the movie. And she read for me and I thought, I believe it, but I'm afraid that anybody knows that this is, you know, the girl from this movie in this movie faking, you know, she's not Meryl Streep. They don't just let anybody fake a foreign accent. I was scared so then i said unless we rewrite the ending so that it turns out she's not uh-huh. a real checker interesting and then i said, we'll get away with yep, it yep and, and that's what we did amazing
3: very cool
2: oh what a great story what a cool story I didn't know that at all. Yeah, I I, I I, just didn't know how we'd get away with it. You know, there'd be, you know, Rex Reed would come after
1: me. <laughs> I want to tell you, so this that. is not what I thought the movie was going to be like.
2: <laughs>
1: <So, Yeah. laughs> you no, know, that is fantastic. That's perfect. I mean, it, it totally buttons up her character. Uh, Because at the end, you're like, oh, wait, she's this L.A., <laughs>
2: you know. Cheryl. Yeah. And even even the very last thing in the movie, the uh, you know that mac, the microfilm that she spirited into his backpack, and then yes. everybody's trying to kill him to get this microfilm. Yes, and there, were, it, there was never any indication in the original script what was on that microfilm. And when we got to Universal, uh, they said, "All right, you got to you got to explain you got to explain what's on there." And we went through a number of rewrites to try to and it was always like it's a bio biological weapon bomb. right and finally we all agreed you know what's on there spy shit <laughs> 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 and that's all it ever was
1: it's all you need it totally changes it yeah it, that's all you need that's all you need dustin and i did agree that we we wanted to see more of manalo throughout the movie that was the only th- the, the thing we wanted
2: more of you mean, jay Z and you agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so, he, he's the comic relief. Look, right? he was great. I, I, but he's the comic relief. He kind of saves the day. He and his guys saved the day at the end. He tells her, you know, you better, you better not break his heart, you know, because uh, he was a good friend. I, we probably did add a little of him, but in the in the original script, that's the amount that was there. You know, it was it was Jonathan's movie, uh, and sometimes you know what they say too. Uh, you know, always leave them wanting more. Too much of a good thing is no good. Whatever. I, I, I'm comfortable. And I think I think Nick's comfortable too. Just the amount that that was there.
1: Sure. No, I I feel that I, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Um, but you know, you were saying that you became this like comedic guy. Right? This comedy guy. And and you you follow up gotcha with Tough Guys, which I personally love. Uh and you got to work with Kirk Douglas again.
2: Yeah. And and that was again, it it was comedic. It certainly had funny stuff in it. And uh but it, it was you could relate to these two guys and there was just there was just enough reality in it and about this fish out of water and you know coming out of prison after thirty years to try and fit into a world where the red hot chili peppers exist. I mean, <laughs> that was comedic and yet real. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. And and oddly enough, the way that I got Gotcha was the guy who got me Revenge of the Nerds, Joe Wazan, who was no longer the head of a studio but was now being a producer again. He's the one that found the Gotcha script, uh, the uh, the tough guy script. Oh. And sent it to me, and he said, give this to Kirk Douglas. Let's try and make this movie. And that's what we did. That's great. So Joe was the producer of Tough Guys.
4: Kirk Douglas. Marchie Lowe. Bert Lancaster. My name is Harry Doyle. In Tough Guys. They've been in prison since 1956. Now they're out. And things have changed. Men have changed. Women have changed. The only thing that hasn't changed are harry and archie kirk douglas bird lancaster friends for years legends for life tough guys
2: when kirk and i first met on eddie macon's run uh we had a little bit of a problem and we got over it and we've stayed really good friends for the rest of his life
1: i'm glad you did by the way i'm glad you did because tough guys wouldn't have been made if that was the case or with cast with different people
2: Obviously. Yeah. I mean, at one point, uh, this is telling tales out of school, is that what we do on Go ahead. Please. Tales out of school. That's Uh, the new title. So Kirk really wanted to do Kirk really wanted to do tough guys. He sent it to Bert. Bert was a little, I don't know if it was a health thing or a patient impatience thing. He wasn't that thrilled about doing it, but he could see that they should do it because It's perfect for them. It was written for them. The the, the guys that wrote it saw them as presenters on an Oscar show and said, we got to make another movie for these guys. So it was all about that duet. And Bert agreed to do it. But then he started having second thoughts. And there were a number of bumps in the road on the way to making that movie where Bert was considering backing out or actually backing out. And at a certain point, Kirk had to to call him up and make him feel guilty and he said, you know, one of these days, one of us is going to be doing the other one's eulogy, and we need to do another movie together. Mm-hmm. And Bert agreed to do it. But it was always like a—they they were like a marriage, you know. They loved each other, but they couldn't stand each other sometimes. So that that that, that dynamic—it kind of shows in the movie, and it was certainly shown on the set. Uh, and it was for me, it was like I love both the guys, you know, as as movie stars, and I sort of wanted to see could I survive working with two. Big stars like this, icons, and especially when they were like pulling, pulling in opposite directions, it was it was like this. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I did survive, and and I liked the movie. At one point, I I wrote a note to Jeff Katzenberg, who was the head of Disney, sure. And I was looking at the dailies, and I was feeling so good about tough guys. And I said, I really feel good about this movie. It reminds me of Butch Cassidy. In fact, I will do my next movie for free if this movie is a, isn't a hit. Oh. So put that in writing. So I put it in writing. and Luckily, it did just well enough that I didn't have to work for free right after.
1: <laughs> and then you get True Beverly Hills. Now, I, I, I was going to say, working, working with those two guys, uh, harder than working with kids in True Beverly Hills or just the same?
2: Actually easier. <laughs> I mean, harder politically, you know, like, yeah, you had you had a little more uh, babysitting to do for the the, the guys than the girls because the yeah. girls just would do whatever you said, and, and their mothers were more of a problem than the actresses. They were all great. Uh, of course. Kirk and Bert had to manage that. You yeah. know, uh, they would have certain days where they would get on each other's nerves, and, and there was a scene when uh, Kirk goes into this. Bar that used to be their old hangout, and now he doesn't realize it, but it's now a gay bar. And some guy asks him to dance. And when he comes out, here comes Bert, because they're they're not supposed to see each other, because they're both ex cons. And he says, "Don't go in there, Harry." He says, "Why not?" He goes, "Just don't go in there." And then, as they're playing this scene, all of a sudden I notice there's like a little struggle breaking out below the below the frame. And all of a sudden, <laughs> in the middle of a take, Kirk says. Get your fucking hands off me, Bert! I know what you're trying to do. <laughs> Bert was trying to turn so that instead of over the shoulder, it was a fifty-fifty because Bert wanted to be equal in the shot, and so he was trying to turn Kirk oh around. Like this. Oh my god! Some days there were, but other Managing days it was great. Babies. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, I mean, look, they're, they're, when you're directing, that's part of your job. Is the you know, actors are special people, and you can't expect them to just be, you know, like pliable and, you know, and they they have feelings about what they're doing and you got to take, you have to accept that and deal with that. Uh, when I first started directing, I didn't know anything about that. I had never taken an acting class. I had Why never would you? done a film and I just, I just thought, you know, you, they read the script. I mean, the, the first scene that I shot with Hal Holbrook on Natural Enemies, we shot one day of just walking around New York. That was easy. I thought, oh, I can direct you know go over here go over there roll in yep. action great now we're shooting a dialogue scene and a serious scene and he says to me what's this scene about and my first response was didn't you read it oh no he goes, that's not what i mean, so that what I mean. Know, it's kind of like what's my goal in the scene you know what's what where's the scene fit into the whole and i i'm supposed to have an answer to that question which i learned from that point on that day i felt really like an idiot and i went up to the first aid and i said uh, his name was john quill i said john i'm leaving he says where are you going to lunch i said no i'm leaving i'm not I'm, i quit he goes you can't quit it's your movie <laughs> you know you're the producer you're the director,
0: it's your money you
2: and right. quit i go I, um, I made a mistake i i can't do this job I, I thought i could i can't He goes, you just take a walk around the block come back here and then we'll talk. So I walked around the block, and I i had to like work myself back up into having the courage to go back in the room with Hal Holbrook. And somehow I got through that. But I realized how much I didn't know at that point. But I learned.
1: Wow, that's crazy. That's great. You, you know, you you bring up uh, you bring up not knowing what to do. You bring up uh, working with with two icons like Kirk and Bert, and uh, it, it, that reminded me a little bit of uh, Paul Newman and Steve McQueen in The Towering Inferno, when uh, each actor wanted their name higher.
2: Yeah, the no, poster. that that, that actually happened on Tough Guys. Kirk wanted to do the movie more, so Burt kind of used that as leverage. And, and in, in their past, uh, when they worked together, they had alternated, like, you get top billing domestic and I'll take top billing foreign, like that. And on Tough Guys, Burt said, no, I'll take top billing in both markets. Because he knew that Kirk would have to say yes. So there was a little bit of tension about that. Wow. It lasted for quite a while. Jeez. <laughs> God. Amazing. Oh, my God. I'll tell you another tough guy's story. You know, there's a scene, if you, if you remember the movie, there's a scene near the end of the movie where they're they're escaping on the train that they hijacked and they're going down to Mexico. And yep. it's, just, it's just Kirk and Bert and Dana Carvey who's playing their parole officer. And there's a scene where now Charles Durning in the helicopter is chasing them and Kirk goes up on top of the train. And I don't, I don't know if you remember, but he moons the helicopter. Yeah. Okay. That wasn't in the script. Kirk <laughs> calls me up calls me up one weekend and he goes, I got an idea coming to my house. So I go to his house and he goes, you know, this crazy quarterback from the Chicago Bears, Jim McMahon. And I go, yeah. He goes, well, he mooned a helicopter full of reporters who were flying over there. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, I heard about goes, well, I want to moon Yablonsky from the top of the train. I said, oh, Kirk, come on. It's Disney. They don't want to see it. Bert <laughs> is going to think it's undignified. He goes, shoot it when he's not around.
3: <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so, so
2: good. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll work it out because it did seem like it might be funny, but I just thought Disney will hate it and Bert will hate it. Yeah. So one afternoon while we were down on the location, I kind of wrapped Bert early and we went out and we shot the mooning scene. Bert never knew about it. Uh, and it's not in the script. So when we had the movie all together and we started to have screenings, I mean, and the scene played really well. We had a screening for college newspaper editors and I, I was there the actors weren't there and I'm answering questions. And one, one college newspaper editor says, whose idea was it to get a superstar to humiliate himself by pulling his pants down on top of the train? Oh. And I said, well, it was actually Kirk's idea. He says, well, you should <laughs> never have let him. <laughs> anyway, says, oh my God. Anybody who would that to, do, to happen should be shocked. That's what he said to me. So, what? weeks later, Future Republicans I, of America, right there, we're doing some looping. They call it ADR, you know, where we replace some of the dialogue. And Bert comes in to do his looping. And I, I had, didn't have the same relationship with him that I had with Kirk. I was always a little uncomfortable with Bert. And I was trying to, like, make him happy, kiss his ass, whatever. We had a few bumpy moments. Uh, and now we're at the recording studio, and I say, hey, this funny thing happened. At this college uh, newspaper screening, he says, What was that? I said, Well, one of these kids raised his hand and he said, Anybody who let Kirk Douglas pull down his pants on top of the train should be shot. burt I agree with him, <laughs> and that was that was a sort of cold water on that day. Uh, but oh, he did, nice. he did, he always did his job did it well, so he didn't like me
1: and in, in in disney disney didn't crucify you for it either so uh
2: <laughs> no, once they were that the difference there is you if you go to a screening and it gets a laugh they love it if yeah it doesn't yeah then well rest
1: of it. You, you know you bringing up jim mcmahon oh my gosh you're bringing up uh <laughs> our our era you know and uh he was my favorite quarterback growing up back in the day because with the headband and the sunglasses, and I remember that when he mooned the the
2: helicopters, <laughs> so. It stayed in because it got laughs. It was funny.
1: Yeah, I really wanted to touch quickly on uh, *Troop Beverly Hills* because, like Dustin said, yeah, that that's just it's like a fun family favorite of ours, and uh as well. Yeah, that's another one that
2: that. Died died when it opened in theaters, and women discovered it on, like you said, on at, at Blockbuster or wherever, and it just lived on and on and on. And then Kardashians had a Choup Beverly Hills baby shower, and not that long ago, well, it's probably years ago, but some group of uh, very talented people they have a thing called the unauthorized musical parody of, and they do they did stage musicals parodying movies. And one of them was Troop Beverly Hills. And I thought, oh, this is going to be awful. And I went to see it. It was so great. I went back to see it five times. It was, it was great. Yep. Uh, and people love that
4: movie. They just do. Phyllis Nefler's life was a symphony of spending. I started my new meaningful life today, and I bought a whole new meaningful wardrobe to you go know, with me. Until her husband stopped the music. You never give me an ounce of credit for anything I do. That's because you never do anything! Well, then I guess I'm going to do something right now.
1: Mom's going to be our new troop leader. Who are you? Uh, uh, Phyllis Neffler, Troop Beverly Hills.
4: Now, she's changing her style.
1: Well, girls, are you ready to
0: rough it?
4: From Rodeo Drive.
0: I can't let you take the girls out there alone. Why not? Because you get lost you walk in your walk-in closet.
4: To cookie drives.
0: That jamboree thing sounds fabulous. <laughs> My trip is definitely going. What is a jamboree?
4: From room service. Is this
0: what you call roughness? One bathroom for nine people? Yes.
4: The public service.
3: Today I am here to demonstrate for you CPR. Lie down
4: and open your mouth.
0: Last time I did this, I got more than a patch for
4: it. And from high society.
0: Do you like people to call you dictator or just dick?
4: To high adventure. We'll be fine. We're Troop Beverly Hills. Shelley Long. What an adventure. Troop Beverly Hills. She's not a babe in the woods. We just quit now. Not until we sing Kumbaya.
3: There's nothing better than cookie time. Nothing better than cookie time. (laughs) really one of the things that i love about that movie though is that it really balances you know shelly long it's like she is this very rich entitled you're not supposed to really like her as the audience as the movie starts and just like her transformation into becoming like her authentic self it's 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 just such an underrated comedy for that reason it's just it's so um it's so balanced it's so well balanced as far as the character's
2: growth I, I, that was in the script that trans transition for her. Um, but if everybody had played things a little too broad, it wouldn't have worked. You know, you, yep, you, you needed right. to be a, a, a drama about the marriage between Freddie Neffler and Phyllis and their daughter wanting their parents to be together. And that's serious stuff, you know? And so all the silly stuff on top of that, it, again, it, it, it worked, but I, nobody saw at the beginning so there was I, I i always assumed it was not a good movie but i like it <laughs> No, i mean i like the movie but i mean for me it was it was like a painful chapter and plus there's a whole backstory about why i did that movie which probably you don't know do you know that i was the original director of dead poet society you know that no did not did not know that Okay, so after Tough Guys, I had a good relationship with Disney. Uh, They wanted to work with me again. I started developing another project. And we were looking for a writer. And I'm reading writing samples. And I read the script. And I think, oh, my God, I love this script. Let's use this writer. And I call. We happen to have the same agent. I call the agent and I go, tell me about this dead Poets." And he said, oh, forget it. It's been around forever. Nobody wants to make it. But maybe you want to work with this writer. I said, no, no, no. I want to make this movie. This could be a great movie. He says, well, it's been everywhere yep. many times. Nobody wants to make it. So I sent it out to several people that I thought I had a relationship with. And out of four of them, three of them passed again. And Disney said, well, we've seen this before. We don't think it's commercial, but if you make the home movie for $5 million, we'll do it. Because I guess that was their figure where they wouldn't lose ever lose money if, if the whole package was $5 million. So I said, great, let's go. And we started making that movie. Yeah, Not to make it too long a story, but there was a question mark about, I found Ethan Hawke and Josh Charles and all these terrific kids. And Disney was really happy and they gave us a start date and I hired a crew and we we're making the movie. And then the only part that we couldn't agree on necessarily was the teacher. Richard Dreyfuss, who read the script, comes in to meet and says, I really always wanted to play a teacher. Uh, I like the script. I'd like to do it. But I need the teacher's part to be made bigger and the kids' parts to be made less. And I said, No, that will ruin the movie. We can't do that. So we shook hands and he left. And then the next person that comes in is Robin Williams. And Robin Williams has read it and likes it and wants to do it. I said, Great. And then the studio person that's calling me says, But there's a problem. What's the problem? His manager has a problem with you. I didn't know what that meant at the time. It probably meant that I wasn't big enough director um
0: okay so i go to lunch
2: with i go to lunch with robin and his manager we have a nice lunch and talk about the script and i think oh this is going to be fine and as we're walking out i say to the manager it's great that we did this because the studio thinks we have a problem but we've never met before and he goes we've met before i think oh Oh, no and the next and i never found out the answer to this but the next day robin's out so now i go to the studio and i go you know problem you know we're supposed to start shooting in like five six weeks no 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 we're, we love the script we, we love the boys we love you we're making the movie we'll get somebody now uh, an actor comes in and auditions and i never heard of him but i thought he was amazing and, and he's so charismatic that i after he read i followed him out to the elevator just to stand next to him for a few more minutes and he leaves and i take the tape and i send it to the studio and they, they say wow this guy's really good but can he be really funny? And I thought, well, Ed Poets isn't a comedy, but yeah, I think this guy can do anything. Uh, so they say, well, bring him back and have him be funny. So I bring him back. His name was Liam Neeson. Uh, <laughs> I bring him back oh. and Liam does, an audition. He does a funny audition. He's great. I bring the tape back to the studio guys and they go, wow, he's really good. But I mean, Katzenberg says he's really good, but the guys in the background are waving their arms, like waving off. No, because now it went from a $5 million movie with no names. Now they want a star. They don't want an unknown like Liam Neeson. So they pass on it. Oh. Then I go through the same basic process. With, a lot of guys are reading for the script. You know, Christopher Reeve and Alan Rickman and a whole bunch of guys. Oh, wow. Makes and uh, Kirk Douglas actually came in and auditioned. To be the teacher, he loved that. He read the script and loved it so much. And Emilio Estevez, oh author. wow, these guys. Have been the show. Anyway, um, and so I go through the same basic beats with Alec Baldwin. They never heard of him. He's great, and he gave a really good wow. audition. They pass on him. Then wow. they send me a note that says, we, "We want you to consider these four guys to play the teacher: Mel Brooks, Albert Brooks, Danny DeVito, David Letterman."
3: David, David Letterman? Letterman.
2: Yeah, I said, "What movie are you guys making?" Well, we think oh, they'd be no. fun to have as a future. I said, "But this is a drama. This kid hangs up at the end." So... they said, I said "And oh what about god. the poetry?" And they say, "Fuck the poetry." So, oh my god, oh my god, the final beat you is, never hear about. I go down to Atlanta to film the sun rising over the school. Uh, I got my camera guy there, and we were there to shoot. And before I went to Atlanta, I just had the sense if I don't get them a name, the movie's going to die. So I send the script yeah, to yep. Jack Nicholson, Harrison Ford, and Dustin Hoffman. Harrison Ford wow. never heard back. Jack Nicholson passes Dustin Hoffman. When I get to Atlanta, I get a phone call saying Dustin read the script. Uh, no, Dustin's person, whoever that is, read the script, and Dustin's going to read it tomorrow. The next day, I get a call from okay. Michael Eisner, who never calls me. Michael Eisner says, Jeff, Mike Eisner what's up? Dustin Hoffman read the script. He loves it. He wants to do it. I said, oh, that's great. But he wants to direct it. So I said, um, um, what did you tell him? He said, well, he's coming to my house for dinner tonight. And he's never come to my house for dinner before. And he's never said yes to anything we've ever offered him. So I took that to mean I'll talk him into it. And then the next morning they called and said, um, you better fly back here. And so I got fired oh. that day
0: oh no oh,
2: man oh man oh that, that was tough and so the reason that i did true beverly hills is i thought well i clearly my stock is pretty low and i'm expendable so i got to have another hit before i i, I can be like yeah. not fireable again so i heard about oh, this yeah hills movie and i went and i auditioned for that and i got that and that's how that happened oh my gosh oh man that is brutal so the question the question is are these all chapters of i'll burn that bridge when i come to it or who the fuck is jeff canoe well b- burn the bridge burn
3: the <laughs> <laughs> it, that this bridge deserves to be set on total fire yeah i'm burning yeah. some right
2: now because telling these stories you know this is such a popular podcast that eisner's gonna see it katzenberg's gonna see it everybody's gonna see it yeah yep.
1: I tell you what. I tell you what. We 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 are we are all about authenticity and 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 truth and uh, and but also, you know, it, it's these are the stories that need to be told because people need to hear these. It's like the struggles you went through to get to where you are today. You know, everything that, like I said in the beginning of this uh, interview, everything that gets you to where you are now matters
2: right? It matters whether it was good or bad. Well, it's true. And I just got a fortune cookie a few weeks ago that said uh, we learn we learn more from failure than we do from success. Absolutely. So that's it's a very, very wise cookie. By the way, between Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman and the fact that my one of my sons is named Justin, so like I'm open to what whatever you guys say.
1: Okay. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I love it.
3: I love it. I'm actually named after Dustin Hoffman because my aunt went on a date with him when she was a stand-in for Mia Farrow on um, John and Mary.
2: So, um, wow. and I was going to be named Justin up to that point. I try, so. try to tell this one story really, really fast. And I'm working with Shelley Please. Long. She gets a call to go have a meeting with Dustin hoffman about some project and oh so shit. she, she, she leaves the set or she goes home that night the next morning she comes in she goes i met with dustin hoffman yesterday and uh when i walked in he said so what are you doing and i told him and when i mentioned that i was working with you he said i didn't get him fired <laughs> oh god <laughs> that was that was but you did well, I can't, I imagine. Imagine anyway. I
1: can't even was? imagine what that amazing. what that movie would have looked like with Al. The, who you wanted to cast sounds amazing, but.
2: They used all the kids and they, you know, because the script was really strong. I mean, Peter Weir did a really good job. I mean, the way, the, I only met Peter Weir once. I was walking somewhere and all of a sudden I hear a voice saying in Australian accent, I can't do it. But, Excuse me, are you Jeff Canoe? I said, yeah. He goes, I'm Peter Weir. I'm so sorry. I said, "How do you even know me?" He goes, "Well, I saw you on the tapes, the casting tapes with the boys," and I just feel really bad. Oh, I said, "Well, it wasn't your fault." Amazing, so I just, I it, amazing. Oh God! All right. Well, lightheartedness. All right. Well, just, just just turn this off. It's so depressing.
1: As as we're as we're as we're getting wrapped up, uh, and obviously, first of all, want to thank you for all this time and insight that you've given us. and and
3: being flexible
1: with your time. Thank you so much.
3: All right, guys. All right, cool.
0: Goodbye.
3: Thank you so much, Jeff.
0: Oh, listen, I just wanted to say goodbye and remind you that the good guys always win, even
3: in the 80s. All right, thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe
1: and give us a four. Is it five-star rating? (laughs) Don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We really... Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you listen to us on Spotify, that's great too. And you can find us on the internet. (laughs) Don't forget to check out our website at $2LateFeed.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at $2LateFeed Podcast. We'll see you next time. We did
4: it.